1: Rebellion Extinct, Pregosan, Putin and Power Grabs. You know, during the 1991 Soviet coup d'etat, state television ignored the rebellion on its doorstep, instead famously broadcasting a scene from the ballet Swan Lake over and over and over again. Now, that's not so easy to do in the age of social media. And we saw exactly this last weekend when Russia's notorious mercenary leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, held the world's attention in his own military coup.
0: (laughs) Wagner Company, they wanted to disband us. We started out on the March for Justice on the 23rd. In 24 hours, we reached within 200 kilometres of Moscow. Over that time, we didn't shed a single drop of our men's blood.
1: Russian television still managed to sandwich news coverage between documentaries on Berlusconi and Caviar. Nevertheless, it was the story that simply would not go away.
0: I'm addressing Russian citizens again. I'm thanking you for your perseverance, for your unity and patriotism. This civil solidarity has shown that any blackmail, any attempts to cause domestic discord are doomed to failure.
1: Days on and after the weekend spectacle, it seems there are more questions than answers. What will Putin do next? What role does Belarus play in all of this? Will Ukraine make advances? And is progoshin a dead man walking? Two factors played into my decision to turn around.
0: First factor, we wanted to avoid a Russian bloodshed. Second is, we marched in
1: demonstration of a protest not to overturn the power in the country. I'm Siobhan McGuire, and to find out more, I'm joined by Donica O'Bacon, Professor of Politics at Dublin City University. Donica, what played out over the weekend was riveting to watch, especially when it unravels in real time before your eyes. Can you give us a quick refresh?
0: Yeah, well, (laughs) it's difficult because even now we don't fully know what happened because we don't have access to all the information that the key players Putin and Prigozhin and Lukashenko had but it certainly if you take Putin at his word was the most serious threat to Russia since 1917 when your listeners may remember what happened in 1917 you had uh, Tsar Nicholas II who was fighting a very unpopular war World War I as it was known and um, essentially Lenin uh, from and this is how Putin put it was stabbed in the back and, and Lenin took over so what Putin is presenting himself here as the the, the kind of the czar who's been in power for some time again an unpopular war is being fought in Ukraine and Prigozhin here is the potential Lenin Um, so this is how Putin himself framed it and it was a remarkable destruction of, of Russian sovereignty in a very very short space of time I mean it shows you how fragile the Russian state is This Wagner group, who you might remember were sometimes only advancing by a metre or two every day towards Bakhmut uh, in Ukraine, advanced 800 kilometres in a single day uh, towards Moscow um, without any opposition. I mean, this is something I think that will cause Putin to lose sleep at night is how... They, they were virtually welcomed uh, by some in Rostov-on-Don. Rostov-on-Don is a city about the size of Dublin. It's one of the 10 biggest cities in Russia. Um, they, they took Rostov-on-Don without firing a shot. Um, and some people openly welcomed um, Yegeni Prigozhin and the Wagner group. But most people were indifferent. Most people sat it out waiting to see what
1: would happen. When we look at how it unfolded on Saturday and you talk about Rostov, These people, the Wagner group, they were treated like rock stars. You had Bregosan taking selfies with people. You had all these memes uh, coming out over the weekend from these towns, like, uh, you know, who bought all the pasta? Because they treated it the way, and I don't want to diminish it, but the way we might, you know, impending snow and we all run out and buy the bread. That's what happened in Rostov. Everyone ran out, got the groceries in and then realised, you know, actually everything is going to be OK.
0: Yeah, eventually, um, when it became clear that there was going to be some kind of normality returning, people were, yeah, vying for selfies with Prigozhin and throwing flowers, essentially, at the Wagner troops. I mean, it does show something about, again, the fragility of Putin's grasp of power, which isn't fully understood. And one of the key takeaways, I think, from this weekend is that when Putin is backed into a corner, uh, he will backtrack. He will make concessions. He will put his own survival above everything else, even if it means humiliation. And in fact, what we have seen now is that Putin responds to strength. I mean, like, you know, he only attacked Ukraine because he perceived it to be weak. He attacks his neighbours because he perceives them to be weak. But when confronted with strength, with military strength, he backs down. And that's what he did during this weekend. I mean, it was a humiliation for Putin. You might say it was never a good idea to allow a private mercenary group to uh, proliferate. Uh, But that's what war does. I mean, the Wagner group was operating in Africa, propping up dictatorships there. It was a a money-making exercise. It allowed the Russian state to outsource the dirty work uh, to others. But because the war in Ukraine was going so badly, they needed to plug the holes in the military. And that's where Wagner stepped in. And they became then a, a bigger player in domestic politics and Putin of course completely underestimated Prigozhin because for him who is Prigozhin? I mean Prigozhin was in, was in prison for almost a decade uh, in Soviet times. He's a criminal. Uh, he made his money in the catering business. He was essentially almost like Putin's servant um, you know and then he emerges from nowhere um, and is the biggest threat to Putin's power in the quarter century almost quarter century that Putin has been uh, at the helm. So, so this is something that Putin has misplayed. He comes across as a man who was not only weak, but indecisive. I mean, Prigozhin makes his initial challenge uh, on Friday night and we, you know, already you see tanks beginning to defend public buildings in Moscow and and no explanation from Putin. Can you imagine if, you know, tanks were going around Leinster House or Buckingham Palace, whatever like that, that, you know, a speech from the government would be immediate to explain to the citizens what the hell is going on. But Putin stayed silent and then he came out with this said, very, very trenchant speech at the beginning of Saturday uh, and then he backtracked completely by the end of Saturday. So it's it's one thing that we can clearly take from this there's a lot that we don't know but that Putin does not come out well out of this and of course Russia's difficulty is going to be Ukraine's opportunity um, because even though of course many in Ukraine were also sitting back with the popcorn waiting to see how this would unfold um, and, and hoping that it would lead to more internal uh, dissension within Russia but certainly you know it's it's going to be a morale boost for people in Ukraine uh, as they fight this counter-offensive they've, they've now taken their ninth village uh, uh, this 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 month in june but this is going to i think be a shot on the arm for the ukrainian forces because you know they're going to see that you know russia itself is 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 not a united front, uh, is fragmented. And as is always the case in Russia, change comes from the top, not from below. We're used to kind of the idea of revolutions, you know, that people, people rise up. That doesn't happen in Russia. If you look at all the major changes in, in Russian history, you have long periods of authoritarian rule punctuated by brief periods of trouble, of chaos. Uh, you know, the early 17th century, 1917, 1991. And it's always replaced by some form of new authoritarian rule. But it's never the people rising up. It's 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 always some kind of even even with um, the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was Boris Yeltsin who pulled the rug from Mikhail Gorbachev, and Prigozhin again was playing that potential role. It didn't happen, but it shows you what can happen very quickly in Russia.
1: So, Donica, if if Putin's Tsar Nicholas, Prigozhin is Lenin, then who's Stalin?
0: Well, that's a very, very interesting question. I mean, well, S- Stalin was in power for, for a long time. I mean, he was in power for three decades and Putin is now approaching a quarter century. So if if anyone is, is Stalin, I guess it, it, it might be Putin in, in, if, you're, if you're to use this parallel. But I think there was a certain... Um, irony in the fact that when Putin addressed the nation on Saturday, it was 16 months to the day when he made a similar address you know, to the Russian nation via state TV. And this was the address in which he announced the invasion of Ukraine, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And what was that all about? Or what was it supposed to be about? It was supposed to be about projecting Russian power, of making Russia stronger, of subordinating Ukraine to Russia's will. And Here he was 16 months later, I said exactly to the day, and he was again addressing the Russian people with a very different message. Uh, saying that not Ukraine that was uh, in danger, but Russia was in danger. That, you know, troops were advancing towards Moscow, that the very existence of Russia, which he, he hastened to add had been in existence for a millennium, historians might might doubt that, but that's what he said, uh, was, was, was facing an existential threat. And it wasn't facing an existential threat from without, it was facing a threat from within. If you, if you go back to your question about Stalin, I mean, he does have this Stalinist um, preoccupation with threats from within and without, I mean, that was a core aspect of Stalin's methodology: is that he explained every imperfection in society by reference to uh, domestic conspirators and traitors, and they were all purged. and external support and we've seen Putin do that again with this recent speech I mean he's he's blamed a lot of it on external uh, actors and factors uh, aligning themselves with domestic traitors and that of course is perfect for a dictator because it absolves you from any responsibility for anything that's gone wrong
1: And we had uh, Putin's statement yesterday um, which you know was kind of a little bit more of the same really when you think about what he was saying over the weekend and uh, up to now the people who betrayed were enemies of Russia uh, they wanted society to split there is still a colossal threat from abroad
0: well, Vladimir Putin uh, making a speech uh, holding a mo- moment's silence uh, before he continues um, thanking uh, military who have defended the country.
1: Our resolution and courage, as
0: well as the consolidation of the entire entirety of Russian society, has been huge and has played a defining role in overcoming these obstacles
1: and the mutiny. You can see that the army,
0: society and people were one. We learned very little. It was five minutes of essentially trying to present a positive spin uh, about what happened, trying to show that he was still in charge, uh, saying, for example, that the rebellion would have been put down anyway. It was almost like, you know, okay, Pergosian had took the initiative, he was the one who called it off, but he, it was doomed to failure. That wasn't clear at all. I mean, they were they were extremely scared. The mayor of Moscow made Monday an un- un- unscheduled public holiday, he said people don't have to come into work. They were expecting this to last for, for a long time. And the Gratitude he expressed in his speech towards the military and the citizenry. He, he speaks of the patriotic spirit of the citizens, the consolidation of Russian society. That's what played a decisive role these days. Of course, that wasn't the case at all. Nobody came to his his aid. Um, and as I said, that's that's the key takeaway here. That you know the the, the monopoly of power that Putin enjoyed is very fragile, um, and that he you know if, as I said, change comes, it's likely to come from within his inner circle. We don't know who that is now um, because. And it it probably, of course, now won't be Evgeny Prigozhin. It won't be the other kind of actors that we we, that are in the public eye, um, because. In a dictatorship, if you're obviously a number two or number three, um, you know, you're you're going to attract the the attention of number one. So you you don't have a a deputy leader or a vice president or a Taunashta in a dictatorship because that only makes people think that, oh, there's a potential alternative. Uh, Dictators never allow that. So we don't know, um, you know, who will replace Putin, but certainly his grip on power has been fundamentally undermined. We see the the weakness of the the Russian regime, and and it also demonstrates how how, uh, difficult and dangerous it is for uh, President Putin to be reliant on mercenaries that has actually turned against him. And uh, it also demonstrates that uh, uh, it is hard to predict exactly what will now happen in the next days and weeks. But uh, we should not make the mistakes that we are underestimating uh, the Russians.
1: Danica, Prigozhin, is he a dead man walking, do you think?
0: Well, you have to think that his life expectancy uh, isn't great these days because Putin has a consistent record of demonstrating remarkable intolerance of what he perceives to be treachery uh, or indeed just simply a rival. And Prigozhin has proven himself now to be both. Putin has called him out as a traitor. He considers him a rival. You think of the fate of someone like Alexander Litvinenko who was poisoned uh, in London, uh, the attempt on uh, Sergei Skripal's life uh, in, in in Salisbury. So, you know, the longer that, 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 that Prigozhin lives, the more he is a mockery of Putin. Every day that he lives is a mockery of Putin's power because people who meet Prigozhin will say, well, here's the man who defied Putin and is still living and thriving. So it's possible to, to, to invade Russian territory. It's possible to threaten the Kremlin and still, uh, you know, have a successful life. So it's hard to see how this can be reconciled with Putin's uh, presentation of himself as a strong man and therefore you have to wonder yes is, is Purgosian a dead man walking uh, you know what are his prospects uh, certainly I don't think he would be uh, uh, a viable prospect for most uh, life assurance companies
1: oh, and then it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier as well Danica that progoshin is a name we now know so if anything does happen to him it's not going to be like the Salisbury poisonings where suddenly you become familiar with the Russian name after the fact.
0: That's true, but I mean... And so there is that threat that if if Putin moved on him too early, um, that there may be some kind of a, a backlash, and that you know he has some degree of domestic popularity. But again, I come back to this point: how Russian, the Russian society is quite depoliticized, demotivated, and I think would accept it fatalistically that this is just what happens to people when they get in 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 the way. And that's why most of them themselves don't get in the way um, on a daily basis. They don't come to the attention of the police. They don't try and challenge. They don't try and protest. They because they know that even for for minor protests um you know lengthy pr- prison sentences are are inevitable i mean there was one well known russian oppositionist recently who was sentenced to 25 years in prison just for simply opposing the war and here you have a man uh, prigozhin you know who actually implemented a war on Russian territory and it seems to be getting off scot-free. So again, you know, and, and that's why I wonder if, if Putin will, will, will reconsider this. And there's some evidence that he's already doing it in the speech that he gave when he talked about bringing the, the people responsible to justice. He didn't mention Prigozhin by name, but he may be a uh, may be the first signs that he's actually now going to go after uh, Prigozhin. But then again, the fact that he's in Belarus, I don't know that's symbolically important uh, because it's a different country. Prigozhin might not be happy with the fact that uh, Belarus is the only country in Europe which has the death penalty on the statute books, um, and and you know Lukashenko is a firm ally of Putin. But uh, yeah, let's see. It's it's it's. Um, I, I I would be like Stalin before. I would be a man that would become paranoid about my own personal security if I was Prokofiev. I went to Stalin's old uh, dacha, where he his summer house in Georgia one time, and the curtains uh, in Stalin's dacha never reached the ground because Stalin was always preoccupied with assassins, and uh, he was afraid that there would be somebody hiding behind the curtains. So he only always wanted to see the legs of people behind the curtains. I think Pogosian will be investing in shorter curtains in his, in his room in Minsk.
1: All these uh, theories that even footage used of uh, the military um, leader in Russia there, uh, Shoigu, that that was all fabricated. It was footage taken from ages ago, basically. Uh, and so people were wondering, well, what has happened to him? Where has he gone?
0: the fact that the Minister of Defence doesn't make a statement is remarkable. Now, he was shown on TV, as you say, people were unclear about the timing. Um, uh, it wasn't clear when that video was made. Some people are saying there may be a purge. Uh, but certainly Shoigu's future will tell you something about whatever Prigozhin managed to gain from this putative deal that that he secured. Um, because, you know, Prigozhin went in with two major objectives. One was to get rid of Shoigu, who he considers a rival. Um, and, and, and this is where, I mean, Gary Kaspar, of the, the well-known Russian oppositionist, former chess master, always compares Russia as not a, really as being a state, but being more like the mafia, essentially. So just, you know, rather than considering Shoigu as a minister of defence, it sounds very legitimate, he's just a man with 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 weapons, with guns, and so is Prigozhin. So they see each other as rivals for controlling Russia and for having the ear of Putin. So, you know, that was one of his main objectives. Get Shoigu out of the picture, be the main military player in Putin's world. And the second thing was to preserve Wagner, because Wagner was his only source of Power, and neither of those objectives are secured. So it's unclear why Prigozhin backed down. But the thing is, is that, and we've forgotten this, or it wasn't didn't attract maybe as much of attention as it should have. But shortly before he went on the military offensive on Saturday, Prigozhin made a remarkable uh, address. Uh, again on Telegram, where he undermined completely the rationale of the war. He said the war had nothing to do with uh, denazification or demilitarization, you know, because remember, we were told it was all about NATO expansion and whatnot. He said it had nothing to do about protecting ethnic Russians. He said there were only two reasons why Russia invaded Ukraine uh, as it did, and that was to uh, pursue the the private personal ambitions of Sergei Shoigu, the Minister of Defence. And second was oligarch interests, that they had plundered Donbass. Uh, so again, countering the Kremlin narrative completely that they were there for the people of Donbass to help them. They had plundered Donbass and now they wanted to plunder Ukraine. And the, the idea was to install a puppet, uh, a guy called uh, Medvedchuk, uh, to, to put him in power and that they could plunder Ukraine in a, in a kind of a colonial fashion, that there was some kind of institutionalised kleptocracy at play here. And, and that's remarkable because you think think that you know how much we have taken seriously the official grievances of Russia in this and 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 it is very much a straightforward colonial endeavor of taking over a state which you know they believe doesn't have legitimacy but has a lot of resources we see how much grain for example Ukraine exports to the world for getting access to those kinds of things so pergogian made that statement um on 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 friday and then goes on the military offensive on saturday so in a way russia is rudderless really at the moment it it lacks it lacks any kind of um clear direction. And I think the next few days and weeks are going to be, will give us a clear indication, I think, hopefully of who is prevailing now in Russia.
1: But as you say, Russia has shown itself to be fragmented, to uh, show, to, you know, the, the cracks are there for the the entire world to see, dunica And at the end of the day, we can't forget a very important factor in all of this, Russia is a nuclear power, so whether it's Putin or Prigozhin or somebody else, they have these very dangerous, terrifying weaponry at the, the, the push of a button
0: but that's a problem that we will have irrespective of who's in power. And I don't think that any alternative leadership to the current one would necessarily be more reckless than this administration has been um, because, you know, what was more reckless and irrational than invading Ukraine? Uh, And and they have, you know, at various stages of the war, you know, ratcheted up the the, the rhetoric of pressing the red button, if necessary, using tactical nuclear weapons, and they have never done so. Every red line has been crossed, and as we've seen, they've backed down when confronted uh, with, with with military force, so I think we 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 in this part of the world can't allow that to paralyse our our own thinking about supporting Ukraine, because ultimately, as I said, every time Ukraine has made advances, it hasn't uh, warranted any any nuclear retaliation. Must be remembered as well um, that New- Ukraine used to have nuclear weapons; uh, they gave them up in 1994 in return for security guarantees which were never honoured. So that's also a, a chilling message to those who have nuclear weapons that you know it does make sense because it is a we have so many questions still lingering I mean like we have very few answers and you you get the sense that within Russia that this is only part one uh, of, of of a longer drama and what we had was a short term compromise but it's not a long term solution it's a band-aid solution and, and I don't even think they realise yet how big the wounds are uh, in Russian society yep. uh, and now we've seen that you can travel 800 kilometres in Russia without being pushed back by the Russian military and I think that there will come a point um, hopefully sooner rather than later when the calculation will be that it doesn't make sense to continue this war um, and then as we've seen when presented with the inevitable, Putin will make the necessary compromises. He's shown that this weekend, um, and and that has to be the lesson I think for for Ukrainians as well, who will, as I said, take heart from what they've seen uh, in the last couple of days.
1: My thanks to Donika O'Con, professor of politics at Dublin City University. I'm Siobhan McGuire and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by myself, researched by Sylvia Omerodian, with sound by Gavin Hennessy, archive clips from 9 News Australia, 10 News First, CNBC, CNN, Sky News, the BBC, ABC, RTE and independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo-Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.